The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. You're listening to the edition podcast from The Spectator with me, Cindy Yu. On this week's episode, I speak to Owen Matthews about what Russia wants. We also take a look at the new intake of the Red Bull MPs. Are they happy with their new jobs? And at the very end, lockdown's clearly been difficult for a lot of couples. But what about those singletons who are still looking to date? First up. The long-awaited Russia report is finally released this week. But Owen Matthews writes in this week's a cover piece that the only person who will be happy with it is Vladimir Putin. He joins me now, together with Mary Dejevsky, a columnist on foreign affairs for The Independent. So Owen, can you explain why you think Putin will be the only one who's happy with this report? Well, because what's most powerful and what's most powerfully evident about the Russia report is that there is complete a lack of specifics. Uh, All we know is that Russia is this phantom menace that needs to be addressed and it's interfered in various unspecified ways and the committee spends a lot of time criticising the uh, intelligence services for not making greater efforts to protect our democracy from attack. But we don't know what that attack is. And in fact, that's much more psychologically powerful, terrifying and crucially disruptive, important word, disruptive of our democracy than any actual specifics. So actually, if we were talking about, let's, for instance, say for the sake of argument, you know, the Russians put caused this Twitter storm about Brexit and X thousand people responded, or they put out the, the this sort of meme on Facebook and they sponsored these Facebook ads and so on, the kind of things that, America, that, that Russia is known to have done in the American election. If we actually knew those specifics, it would be much less terrifying. But in fact, because the conspiracy theories have gone into overdrive because of the non-specificity of the report, it's absolutely perfect for Putin because actually it makes him sound much more scary and threatening than he actually is, in my opinion. Mary, do you agree? And also, what were the standout points from the report for you? Well, I do agree absolutely with Owen about the way that Russia is depicted in Putin, about how they've got this fantastic streamlined decision-making process, that it's agile, it's nimble, it's fast. And I'm sure that if they're sitting in the Kremlin, they think, my God, you know, let's have a bit of that. (laughs) Because I'm sure that's not how they see themselves. I also think that one of the more interesting things of of the sort of points that came out of it was the extraordinary fragmentation, not just of the sort of counter-espionage effort in the UK, but who deals with disinformation? Who actually gauges it? Who figures out where it is? It's spread out among about 10 different parts of the uh, of British authorities. And it seems that they've tried to um, they've tried to remedy a bit of that suddenly, like today, by bringing um, infamous data, I think they called it, under the Cabinet Office rather than under Department of culture, media, and sport, where it was apparently transferred to about seven years ago. But it does give an extraordinary picture of the non-priority, really, that was given to the whole information stage in the UK. So that was, you know, that, that was um, certainly one point that stood out for me. 
Another was this the wonderful conclusion that I think half of us were sort of thinking, no, they won't find any um, evidence of interference in UK elections. Another half was saying, oh, yes, you know, it'll blacken um, Russia's reputation and it'll show how the Brexit referendum in particular was was manipulated by the Russians. But actually, it shows neither of those, which means, first of all, that the argument goes on, but also that apparently they didn't find any evidence because they didn't look for any, which is an extraordinary conclusion. Uh, maybe, Owen, your, your cover piece actually gives us more information about what the Russians are doing than the Russian report then. I found it particularly interesting when you were talking about the Black Lives Matter involvement of the Russian disinformation campaign. Can you talk a little bit about that? The the thing is that we don't really know. We, we tend to uh, discover the the full sort of forensics and metrics and details of these cyber attacks after rather careful study because it requires some time. So we actually don't know about their involvement in the current Black Lives Matter movement, but we do, we do know a lot about the last time round because there was a convulsion of Black Lives Matter in 2017 and that's actually been rather carefully studied. And the big takeaway of that is that um, the Russian bots, the, the, the troll farms that are famously in St. Petersburg and were um, uh, accused of by the FBI of uh, interfering in the US election. Those same troll farms, funded by a close Putin ally called Evgeny Prigozhin, were equal opportunities disruptors. There's a, a study by the University of Washington that shows that the hashtag um, Black Lives Matter was used equally for pro-Black Lives Matter tweets and anti-Black Lives Matter tweets. So basically the whole Black Lives Matter propaganda operation, or the, rather the Russia's involvement in stirring up the whole uh, culture war around Black Lives Matter in 2017 has been rather comprehensively and proved in detail to have been on both sides, which is rather significant because, of course, Russia cannot hope really to challenge the West, especially not America, on any kind of real-world uh, metric. They, you know, the only thing that they actually really could potentially win against America is a thermonuclear war. Just on every other level below that, Russia's economy is one-fifteenth of that of the United States. They can't possibly really challenge America, but what they can do and are doing is helping America and the West to destroy itself. So if you are actually fighting an asymmetric war of that nature, the whole point, and if you read your Sun Tzu, The Art of War, it's all about using your enemies' discord and, and uh, your enemies' weaknesses against, against them. And that's exactly the, the intention. It's not particularly to get Trump elected or to cause Brexit or to cause a Scottish referendum. The point is that the pattern is really very clear and very simple, that they actually just want to sow discord and help democracy uh, not only tear itself apart, but actually more fundamentally to discredit the very idea of democracy itself. Mary, do you agree that's Russia's foreign policy aim? Actually, I don't agree at all. The idea of disrupting, mischief-making, yes, maybe. But I think there's also, um, I think some of the um, the examinations of these um, troll farms and whatever actually have found that there wasn't really any political motive behind any of this. A lot of it was commercial, that what they were trying to do was earn some money. And it's not that difficult to earn money by putting out things and, uh, and estimating, you know, getting some ad advertising revenue off the back of clicks. And so that might explain just as much as um, disruption, why, as it were, they were playing both sides in the Black Lives Matter debate. 
I actually don't think that Russians are about disruption, not only because of that, but because Russia is a very conservative power. And my view is that they actually didn't want, they weren't in favour of Brexit at all. There were some on the fringes of the Russian leadership, especially on the sort of extreme populist right, which does not include Putin, by the way, who were certainly happy when the vote went for Brexit. But I don't think that was Russia's aim. Russia is very risk averse. And I think the idea that Britain voted for Brexit, which really nobody had in the sort of foreign policy establishment had ever expected, I think they were deeply worried about that because that would have upset an awful lot of calculations. Plus, the idea that that might be a prelude to the whole of the European Union breaking up. You know, now I know that Owen probably thinks that that would be sort of Russia's prime objective. But actually, I don't because it's always been much easier for Russia to deal with, you know, one authority and to see the European Union as a block which they can deal with. And it has a certain degree of predictability about it. I think Russia much prefers that. Owen? Both things can simultaneously be true. Um, I mean, Mary, what Mary is talking about is the serious foreign policy professionals in the foreign ministry. And indeed, she's accurately described like the official Russian line that they may be dis- wary of, of international disruption. But actually, what we're talking about is not actually the, the official foreign ministry line. We're talking about the actions of uh, state, state and semi-state players in sowing... Uh, in, in using social media to, frankly, disrupt and attack um, American democracy. And most recently, what we're talking about is, is Brexit. It's also true that many of those people are professional hackers, by the way. So actually, what the, the, the troll farm and, in fact, in general, Russian malware companies and so on are very closely linked to professional um, hackers and internet ransom merchants and so on. They've just been hired by the Russian state to do their thing. But I think what's what's very clear is that certain parts of the Russian state are actively engaged in this kind of disruption. What I mean, the Russians say the Kremlin has many towers. I mean, sure, you have like the sensible foreign ministry, thoughtful approach, but also you have the people who are sponsoring, even at sort of uh, arm's length, the hacking, the, the disruption. And then on another, another tower of the Kremlin is you know, the, the security services who are sending assassins to murder uh, Sergei Skripal, or attempt to murder Sergei Skripal, which is also has nothing to do with Russian government policy or uh, it, it was irrational and self-defeating and so on. But, but nonetheless, a branch of the Russian state did it. So actually, I mean, the, the, the takeaway is that actually there is no real sort of unifying mastermind behind all of this. There are certainly sensible people who work in, in, in the diplomatic corps and in the foreign ministry. But actually, those are not the people we're talking about. They're not the people that we're worrying about, because I think it's rather undeniable by now that there is actually a massive state-sponsored Russian effort to disrupt and undermine opportunistically in any way that they can. Mary, when it comes to our attitude towards Russia, for example, the disruption report finishes on advice to the government of giving up hope of warming relations with the Kremlin, at least under the current leadership, it says. Do you think that Brits and the West in general are too hawkish on Russia, that they're giving up the sort of idea of warming relations that's even been possible? Yes, I mean, I've thought for a very, very long time that we're way too hawkish, but for one particular reason, which is that I don't think anybody takes nearly enough effort to try to understand how the world looks 
from Moscow and how, you know, if you're Putin or the people around Putin and you look out at your gigantic country, which is practically ungovernable, that that is actually your first priority. And the next priority is its security, which, if you look at it from Moscow, looks as as though it's been more and more restricted as NATO and the European Union has expanded. But I would also like just to touch on one thing that I think also comes out of the report that we haven't really touched on, which is the Russians in London and the way that they're treated in the Russia report as a sort of either overt or covert arm of the Russian state. They're talking about you know, rich Russians, oligarchs, as though they're all either allied to or in the pay of the Kremlin. Now, you know, if British policy towards Russia were more friendly, you could maybe say, well, you know, they've had a terrific effect. But actually, you know, our policy towards Russia is so negative, so hostile, it appears that their money and their presence in London has had absolutely zero influence on UK policy. The influence has come much more insofar as there is influence, and I actually think there is influence, from the opponents of Putin who've settled in London in exile, taken their riches out of Russia. And that's a whole other category which the Russia report barely touches on, other than that we should be terribly nice to them and sympathetic. Owen and Mary, there's definitely more to talk about, but I have to have you on another time. Thanks both. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Boris Johnson has to thank the Red Wall MPs for winning their seats in the 2019 election for his incredible majority right now. But how happy are they in their new roles? Katie Balls writes in this week's Spectator that the party has a management problem where lots of the new intake aren't doing things as they're meant to be. Katie joins me now, together with Paul Goodman, editor of Conservative Home and a former MP himself. So Katie, can you tell us about Boris Johnson's red wall problem? Well, I think it's, it's a wider problem ultimately, which is we are at the end of this parliamentary session. MPs are heading back to their homes or holiday homes for the summer. And ultimately, the party is under strain. Um, you have a situation where the majority of 80 doesn't look so big now. We've had policy U-turns at a range of issues. 5G in the case of Huawei, that was backbench pressure, but also just things like free school meals. And a, a general sense that numbers are going to change their ways a little bit, at least, to improve things by next year. And I think a big factor in this comes down to the lockdown. There is a sense that having people remotely has not helped build morale, camaraderie. You saw this week Boris wants to get all his ministers in the same room. Big effort to do that. They had to get a room in the Foreign Office where it seems, according to some accounts, they can actually hear everything that everyone is saying because it's so big. But the idea was people in a room builds team spirit. And I think where this is the most acute as a problem is the new intake because you had over 100 new Tory MPs elected in December and they were only in the Commons, you know, for a month or so before they were sent packing to their constituencies, barely having in some of these new, you know, 
formerly Labour want now Tory seats, having their offices set up. And they just haven't had that chance to get to know everyone. I think I've spoken to ministers who say like they haven't met half of them. You could say it's on them. And, and as a result, you have this new intake, which are very important to Boris Johnson, who from lockdown have been doing a few things that have raised eyebrows. So you've had the new intake, uh, and obviously they are a wide bunch, but among them, you know, taking to social media to say that the government should change their position on things like the NHS surcharge. You've had the uh, new intake taking to the various WhatsApp groups when they're annoyed about things. You had Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's most senior aide. Now, that was something where lots of MPs came forward, I think around over 40 in the end, to say he should go. But the Red Wall MPs were particularly unhappy. Some of them launched statements not exactly saying he should go, but distancing themselves. So for all their supposed closeness to the Boris Johnson regime, Boris Johnson saying he wanted his person to stay wasn't enough. So all these things are adding up. And I think there is a worry in some quarters that you have a new intake that have just not been trained or, you know, haven't had that time and are very independent minded. And that is spelling trouble for the autumn onwards when you're going to have start having quite difficult votes. Paul, why do you think this group has been a cause for concern? Is it the lockdown or is it the constituencies, who they are or all of the above or something else? There are a number of reasons. I think you have to peel away at them like the skins of an onion. I mean, first of all, a lot of them six months ago in the red wall seats that they've won wouldn't have been expecting to get elected in the first place. So, you know, you have to take that as a given. And, you know, you've got a sort of mass of these these characters who've turned up from quite apparently unlikely, untory-like places. Burnley, Blythe Valley, Redcar, it's a long list. That's the first reason. The second is, you know, as, as Katie says, they barely arrived in the Commons. They were sent away again. So they've not really been properly, properly inducted. And I think next something else she referred to is the rise of the whatsapp group these mps are on all these mass of different whatsapp groups some of which uh, the whips have knowledge of others of which they don't and um, if you're on a whatsapp group and it's not controlled it's rather like going through the palace of westminster and only meeting colleagues who are going to get you worked up about something so you know there's that then there's this i think this is an important factor in the mix Kind of finally, this is a kind of intake of MPs who've not been trained to say no. So, when the new intake came in 2010, start of the coalition, they had a mission to sort out the economy, austerity, spending cuts, tax rises, and all that. This lot were elected to deliver Brexit and to deliver the rest of Boris Johnson's programme. What is it? Well, it's what Boris Johnson likes to call boosterism. It's what I think of as bread and circuses. It's tax cuts, more borrowing, infrastructure, bridges, and a general air of entertainment rather ill-suited to the era of of the coronavirus. So you put all that together, right, and you've got a problem. The majority of AT suddenly looks a lot less secure given the number of instances of revolts and problems that Katie was just able to reel off of which the Marcus Radford free school meals one was a classic exemplar. Katie how did the Red Wall MPs themselves see this do they see it as being particularly rebellious or is it just part and parcel of the job? I think they take great umbrage with the suggestion that they are the problem. To be honest no one likes to be told they're the problem in any circumstances and I also think you've got to look at it on a wider level so you have the new intake I think that 
if you break down some of the things the new intake have done, so for example, there one thing that has riled some in government is, you know, letters organised by new intake MPs to the Treasury asking for money. That wasn't actually a Red Wall MP. There, there are plenty of disruptive, you know, independent-minded new en- intake MPs who are not in the Red Wall. But the Red Wall MPs have the potential to cause the biggest headache because they are the most important to Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has ultimately said that he wants his premiership to be judged on keeping these seats blue. So it means that if you are Blythe Valley, if you are Bishop Auckland, you as an MP are going to hold much greater sway on this number 10 than an MP in Surrey at the moment. It doesn't matter what your personality or CV says it or if in hindsight they would have rather had a different candidate had they thought they were going to win that seat you were just on paper more important so I think that means that the Red Wall MPs have the potential to cause the biggest headache I think though that they feel that some of the received wisdom that is forming around them as a group is unfair I spoke to a few for this piece and some made the point you know we think we are quite loyal actually we did have a wobble, as one put it, around Dominic Cummings. But ultimately, they said that what makes them, in their view, more loyal than lots of these other MPs is they actually do appreciate or accept that Boris Johnson was key to them getting their seat. So they think there is this line of loyalty that not everyone is is picking up on. I think what you have to bear in mind with them, though, is they don't think they have, you know... 10 years to plot their career or work out how to increase their majority by a certain amount. Lots of them have very small majorities. Some have quite big majorities, but they're still seen as unstable majorities. If it's a seat that was formerly Labour and you have a majority of 8,000, it still doesn't feel like a big majority. You don't know what's going to come up at the next election. So I think that means that they feel as though it's fair enough that they are have more pressure on them or they you know have more of a reason to say we need this now than these other new MPs in safe seats and uh, Paul mentioned the WhatsApp group but I think it's interesting that the red wall MPs or the blue wall as Boris Johnson referred to them as cabinet this week they, they act largely as a collective separate to their other colleagues so of the WhatsApp groups they formed a breakaway group after tiring of some of their colleagues you know who they see as they see their colleagues as disruptive, but on issues like farming, and they're not interested in that. So they've got the Blue Barricade, which is their new WhatsApp group to plan things, take the issues they want and work out how to get them. One other thing I would just say on, you know, are they disruptive and how they see it is, I've had a few MPs say to me, look, they don't actually realise what they're doing. You think that when they, you know, they tweet saying the number 10 should do this thing, you know, that it's a Machiavellian scheme and they realise it's a big deal and say, well, because they've been at home, because they haven't met all these people, because they haven't been planning for a political career for like 20 years, they don't actually realise um, quite what it is. And I think what's interesting that's happened this week, because there is acknowledgement of this problem, is the government whips have actually messaged around to say which MPs from 2019 would like a mentor. And I think the hope is that perhaps that could go some way, though. Having a discussion with someone about this yesterday, I'm not sure which MPs in the current Tory party are the prefects who are going to be the stellar example you don't want to pair it with someone who just teaches you more bad habits. Paul that brings me on to my next question which is how much has the government tried to reach out to these MPs and to really mentor them and look after them especially for example over the Dominic Cummings affair as an example do they feel looked after? It's been pretty chaotic because um of the circumstances of of lockdown I, I find a lot depends on who you talk to and who their whip is. If they like their whip and they think their whip is good, they say, fine, there's no problem at all. If they think their whip is useless, which appears to be the case more often than the whip's office collectively would wish, they say the whole system's really not working. 
I think there is um, a, a bigger problem if you step back from it for a moment, which is that you have, one, a chief whip who, in the view of some, did brilliantly up until Brexit, but has somehow got engaged, disengaged since, and has not spotted some of the problems. And the example people keep bringing up is Julian Lewis. Uh, you don't have anyone in Downing Street who's fulfilling what Katie and I remember as the Andrew Mackay role, which is this senior kind of grey-haired figure who can go around spotting problems and dealing with them, even if he's got to, you know, deal with them all, or she deal with them all by Zoom. And then kind of finally, you've got a CCHQ that's basically been shut down and, you know, a party chairman, co-chairman, Amanda Milling, who's not really in the lead. The lead is Ben Elliott. Ben Elliott is the chairman, not an MP, who chairs the board. And it's not even as though Amanda Milling, who isn't meeting her colleagues, uh, you know, isn't able to gear the machine up for elections, but above all, isn't even really out on the radio attacking Keir Starmer because they've collectively decided they're not going to do very much of that. You know, she's not there to do it. So the whole machine, to deal with them, to keep them online, to sort of teach them and herd them along, the whole machine's very creaky. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of them do just feel a little bit unloved, to be honest. <laughs> they they just feel as though they haven't quite got that level of attention or focus. And clearly the past few months, no one's got that much attention because <laughs> we've been in a global pandemic and every Whitehall department has been working on that. But I do think there is a bit more of acknowledgement by Number 10 that they have a party management problem. I don't think they want to change their ways completely. I think the Prime Minister in the past few weeks has been making an effort to meet many more colleagues and I think that, you know, getting on the phone various people. So I think it's a direction they're probably quite happy to move in. And that's why if I were number 10, I'd be fairly optimistic about getting some of this new intake back under control if they can just give them some time. I think that ultimately, particularly the Red Wall MPs, you have a situation where they accept that their fate is pretty tied up with Boris Johnson. I don't know how they would feel about a different Tory leader. So ultimately, they do want it to succeed. Whereas, as one minister says to me in that piece, you know, effectively, you can't get these MPs back on side. You've got a bigger problem because what worries, I think, ministers more is if you add up, you know, the number of ex-ministers, the number of never-ministers, so people who have ultimately accepted that they're not going to get promoted you're getting close to 40 now there's a majority of 80 so 79 yep there we go no but therefore like is in terms of the easy picking through of how to get people on side the new intake should be one where if they have the focus and they do various things i think it's one where they ultimately have to take that opportunity you can understand why the new red wall mps are feeling a bit aggrieved because very often Actually, they're right. They're not causing the government problems over things that it does. So, for example, just picking up on that point about 79 and uh, the loss of Dr Julian Lewis, I spoke to some new Red Wall MPs the day after he went, and they were like, what's the problem taking the whip away? Well, of course you should take the whip away. Whereas it's older, more senior ones who knew him, who were, you know, nodding, shaking their heads and clucking their tongues and saying that they thought, that, you know, the Downing Street had gone a bit over the over the top here. But if there is a tension, it's, it's really this, which is that, by and large, the people in the new seats in the Midlands and the North will be in seats that may well have been in recession for a very long time over the last 15 years or so. Public sectors bigger, private sectors smaller. There's a natural sort of gear to demand more public spending, more intervention, more money for health education more of the stuff that was in the manifestos. So I am wondering if the economy does hit the buffers and Rishi Sunak 
has to get round to taking the harsh decisions that he's hinting he will have to take. I am wondering whether they've got an appetite for cuts and, and tax rises. Uh, and, of course, also whether the rest of the colleagues have too. And just perhaps to end it, I mean, I did say to one of them, how would you feel about tax rises? You know, because they were saying they're not disruptive. And they, were, and they said, well, they're not in the manifesto. <laughs> Katie and Paul, thanks very much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And finally, if you think Zoom pub quizzes are bad enough in terms of awkwardness, what about Zoom first dates? Madeleine Grant writes about love in the age of coronavirus in this week's issue, and she joins me now, together with James Enos Smith, author of The Seven Ages of Man and a contributor to Spectator Life. So Madeleine, I think it's pretty clear why COVID has been bad for singletons, but can you just spell it out for us? Okay, so I think that COVID has come at a time when there's already been a growing suspicion between the sexes and not saying that the Me Too movement has been, you know, that it's done a lot of things right, but I think in its extreme moments, it has created a new culture, particularly in workplaces where people are rather suspicious of each other and a bit scared, and this has bled over into people's social lives too. People are quite, I think often men are now quite hesitant about going up and approaching someone in a bar or nightclub or whatever it is. Um, And I think that just at the time that, that that was already happening, the pandemic has come in and removed a lot of organic social interactions. In the extreme bits of lockdown, it removed all social interactions altogether. And it has meant that people are, it has essentially expedited that trend that was already happening where people were communicating via apps and in the virtual world. Perhaps I'm biased, I'm not a big fan of of dating apps and all the rest of it. I'd much prefer to meet people in person where you get a sense of chemistry, I think, a lot better. But I think that all of this has meant that people are they lack practice at speaking to other people in an organic way. Normal conversations simply aren't happening. And I think that Zoom anything suffers from, I'm sure many listeners have been trying to navigate Zoom conference calls and so on, the people who are working from home. It's bloody awkward, isn't it? You know, everyone talks at once, people jump in at the wrong time, people's jokes don't translate, they're often these long awkward pauses and then everyone jumps in at once this is not a normal way to interact but because of the pandemic and and lockdown particularly all of the normal stuff has been put on ice and that's why I think it's been bad for dating I'm 27 it's it's a bit of an inconvenience Um, some of my friends have had their weddings postponed but it's not that bad for us really the people I'm really concerned about people who are in their kind of mid 30s who are desperate to meet someone because at that time in your life six months is a very long time to not have a proper romantic life James, on the other hand, you've written for Spectator Life saying that maybe this is a chance to revisit the shallowness of pre-COVID relationships, especially for young people. Mm. Tell us about why you think that. Well, I think that we were already in a bit of a bad place as far as you mentioned, Madeline mentioned uh, Me Too. And of course, there's a sense for a lot of men that there's a dysfunction now with Weinstein that, you know, going out to girls in bars is just something kind of creepy about it. So I think that was already on the wane. And I think there's this myth around men actually enjoying the chase anyway. I think a lot of men (laughs) just find it very embarrassing and slightly awkward and not something they particularly want to do. So there's a big myth around that. No, it's true. And um, because all all those hunter-gatherer dating books are lying (laughs) to us. No, you know, men men are just as embarrassed about all that stuff, and they're opening themselves up to being vulnerable, of course, and rejection and all those things that are 
so awful for anyone to experience. But of course, now that we have the added layer of, well, all men are slightly creepy when they go up to women anyway, <laughs> there's an added barrier just to, to normal interaction. I think we'd also become quite entitled with the whole dating app scene. I think our idea of perfection had sort of become almost, you know, quite dysfunctional. We expected our relationship, every relationship, if it didn't live up to our crazy idea of perfection, then we wouldn't even give it a chance. That, I think, has also been accelerated by the COVID because we're not prepared to take a chance. Yeah. It's too risky um, in the real world. So we're, we may not even give people an opportunity online to prove themselves. But it has, it has pushed people to use apps much more, right? I mean, if, if we, what we want is organic interactions, in a way, COVID, I mean, has made people more like, you know, online shopping and online shopping for boyfriends. I know, but I don't think people meet. I think that, you know, I think that amount of choice hasn't made it any easier. It's actually made it harder because you, yeah. you, you know, in order to, to make a decision, you have to be able to narrow your opportunities. And if you've got the whole world of opportunities, <laughs> where, do you, where do you begin and end? I mean, it's just yeah. crazy. Maddie, I liked your story about your male friend who's been collecting women over lockdown. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's 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 a very entrepreneurial sort of person. He got he got um, university sort of got a triple mega first. You know, he's one of those people who gives it his all, and he's done the same. I like with that dating. he's using his uh, yeah. <laughs> intelligence for this. Well, it is, and um, I very much I loved your point about how this is a this is an opportunity for people who are a bit more kind of thinky and wordy, perhaps to gain some comparative advantage in a dating field that seems to be geared towards you know physical physical stuff um I think that's a really that's a really good point one I share up to a point but I do also wonder if some of these people who've been forming these relationships perhaps not like my friend who's got 10 girls that he's texting all at once some of these people will get on the date and they'll find that actually the chemistry wasn't there so this has been time wasted because that chemistry is really important. It's not just about physical attraction, but chemistry is much more. It goes further than just physical attraction. But you kind of don't. You kind of had to see it in person, I think, to know if you have it. Yes, just an image, a two-dimensional image. It may be a true representation of the person, but it has none of the, as you say, the nuance, yeah. of the, the smell, the feel, the, you know, that three-dimensional X factor and that I guess it's draws also, you to someone. And I guess it's also not serendipitous anymore. I mean, we no, were talking exactly. about Me Too, but also yeah. COVID has completely killed bars. Yes. <laughs> yeah, spontaneity, I mean, which is so much a part of how you yeah. interact with someone you meet for the first time. It's the banter, it's the, that, all that stuff. You just can't really do it online. I mean, it's, 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 yeah. it just becomes forced and slightly embarrassing. Then you also, once you spend a bit of time on dating apps, and this was quite, quite a new thing for me because I didn't used to, I didn't like dating apps, but of course the coronavirus, you have to go on them because it's the only way you can meet anyone these days. So it's quite a new thing for me. You realise that you start ruling people out for very superficial and trivial things. And, you know, there's anyone with a rogue apostrophe, X. <laughs> uh, it's sort of like anyone, I'm also suspicious of people who spend too much, look as if they're too into the gym. So I've ruled out loads of hunky people just because they look like they'd be up for going for a run before work. Um, and this fair. Is, but this is, I mean, I think it's fair, but again, this stuff isn't rational because you don't know if, until you've seen it. And I'm sure that many of us have gone out with people that if they'd propped up on an app, we wouldn't necessarily have clicked yes. Yeah. Um, in a way, the serendipity is kind of terrifying because you think, oh, I've just said X to the potential love of my life for a really crummy reason. Yeah. No, it's horrible. It's quite cruel the way we... we it's very sort of Darwinian in a way. Yes. You know, we, the smallest, you know, the smallest mole in the wrong place. You're, well, I don't know. I can't do a mole in the wrong place. <laughs> or a slightly wonky tooth or... 
all those things which you would probably let go if you were meeting someone face to face because obviously you're you're giving someone a chance yes you're not as prepared to let those things go I think yes which is a really sad thing because it means we, we are becoming incredibly entitled yes and I think we were before anyway and now it's just turn that up and we're all like well who do, you know I, I'm not going to go out with anyone until they prove themselves to me that James, they're absolutely perfect James do you think there will be lasting impact on the way we date from coronavirus now that lockdown is easing will it just go back to normal or um I, I hope I hope so I, I fear people have become paranoid and the idea of you know kissing someone on a first date that's it's, it's, it's sort of yeah, repulsion you're kissing right? anyone <laughs> you're kissing anyone yeah there's a slight disgust around uh, around physical contact now which, yeah. which is worrying i think and um, maddie is there anything good about dating online 40 minute zoom limits for example God, <laughs> ten minutes. i think steer well, well clear of zoom it's a it's an awkward minefield it's much better if you if you are sticking to the rules now we can go to the pub now which is great but even a walk in the park from a distance would be preferable to Zoom, I think. It's just something so creepy about the sort of bobbing head thing. Uh, anything good has come out of it? Well, as James mentioned, I think it's an opportunity for people who find that whole thing of plucking up the courage to go and perhaps shyer men who are more verbal than uh, massive brute strength. Stereotyping again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it may be that it's an area where they can gain, to, to put it in crude economic terms, some kind of comparative advantage over other possibilities and especially if if words are all you have if physical interaction is taken out of the game it means that someone who's very funny or a great wordsmith will have an opportunity and I think there's definitely something to be said for that but yeah in in general I feel I feel quite pessimistic because I think it's sped up a trend that I already thought was quite bad for human relationships it's really fast-tracked that Mm -hmm. Um, and it's added as James mentioned the new kind of tide of suspicion about yeah. physical touch and closeness and so on i think we just need to get regain some humility yeah. and not expect everyone that we're going to meet is going to be some sort of perfect uh, embodiment of everything we've ever wanted and which i think online dating has done to an extent and i think just pull back and go well i'm not perfect no one's perfect let's just Give people a chance. Well, speak for yourself, James. James. <laughs> Maddie and James, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Do pick up the issue to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as Michael Palin's diary, H.R. McMaster on Britain's critical role to play in taming China, and Peter Hitchens on his thoughts about masks. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. The Spectators podcast now have a newsletter. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights to get the Spectators podcast highlights in your inbox every Monday.